Uh, welcome back to this Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff. I'm a paediatric oncologist. And like I always say, I wish you weren't listening to this because I wish we didn't have to have podcasts on children's cancer at all. And in particular, I wish that, well, I wish that you hadn't had to find a reason to be listening to this. Today I'm going to speak about chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, scary word for most people. Some people have never heard the word before, and that makes it scary. But most people have heard the word before, and it's really a word that strikes terror into their heart almost. It's a, it's a, a word that they've heard horror stories and nightmares. and Maybe they remember Lance Armstrong. Remember Lance Armstrong, the, the uh, cycling champion, who uh, before he became a cycling champion, he had chemotherapy and tells the story of them just about destroying him and then slowly rebuilding him. He was cured, but still it was a nightmare story. So, yep, it's a scary word, and uh, I think I can dispel a lot of the sort of myths that surround chemotherapy today, but I think I'll end up having to say that if we have to give chemotherapy to a child, well, it's it's often a rough time and uh, a bad time. Manageable, uh, but, a, but a bad time. But chemotherapy, what is it? Well, it's just a fancy word for drugs that kill cancer. That's all it is, chemotherapy, cancer drugs. That's all it means. And the important thing is that you can't generalize about chemotherapy, about what it's going to be like, what are the side effects, is it going to be a terrible time, or is it going to be a nightmare, or is it going to be a walk in the park, what's it going to be? You can't generalize at all because chemotherapy is made up of dozens and dozens of different drugs. There's all sorts of different drugs. In fact, there's hundreds of new drugs now. There's all these new drugs being invented every time you turn. So you can't generalize and say, ah, oh, chemotherapy is going to do X or it's going to do Y because there's all sorts of different drugs. Then there's all sorts of different doses. For some tumors, you have to give high doses of drugs. For some tumors, you give lower doses of drugs. And then there's variability in the way that a particular child will handle chemotherapy. Some children can have chemotherapy drugs and, for instance, they don't feel sick at all. Other kids have the same drug and the same dose and they do feel sick and feel like vomiting. So there's an individual variability in the way a particular child responds to drugs and there's no predicting it often who's going to handle drugs better and who's going to handle drugs worse. It's a case of well, giving them and then we just see what we have to deal with. And then, of course, the underlying disease that we're treating is important. Certain diseases are going to make the toxicities of chemotherapy worse than others. So if a child has leukaemia and the bone marrow is already impaired by the leukaemia, well, the bone marrow side effects from the drugs are likely to be worse. So there's a lot of variability and you can't generalise and ultimately what you need is to get very specific information from a child's medical team to tell them what the drugs are and what side effects might be expected rather than relying on what you've observed from other people who had chemotherapy, particularly adults who had chemotherapy or people who had chemotherapy in different eras, people who had chemotherapy for different cancers. But we use a lot of chemotherapy in the treatment of children's cancer and the main reason is that children's cancers as a group tend to be very sensitive to chemotherapy. What do I mean by sensitive? 
I mean, we give the drugs and the tumour gets smaller. Or the leukaemia goes away. Or the leukaemia goes into remission within a month for acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. So that's the reason we give so much chemotherapy. We sometimes see spectacular improvements in a cancer. We see it shrink within a matter of several weeks. And so most children who are treated for cancer end up getting chemotherapy along the way. There are some children who don't need chemotherapy for cancer. Sometimes all they need is an operation. But the great majority of the time, we end up giving chemotherapy to children with cancer. And that's because it works to cure the disease. And normally, we have big, huge clinical trials that have been conducted in previous eras where parents have agreed for their child to be on the research trial to evaluate the treatment and work out, well, does it work? And so that's why most children end up getting chemotherapy. It's because it works. It improves the chances to survive the cancer. The other thing to say right at the start is, the children tend to handle chemotherapy better than adults. We tend to be able to give doses of drugs to children that adults couldn't tolerate. That is, adults would get more severe side effects and wouldn't be able to handle it. So a lot of the time parents say to us, oh, are you sure that two-year-old or three-year-old can handle chemotherapy? Well, if you're a paediatric oncologist like me, well, the answer is yes. We've, we've done it before. Children handle chemotherapy better than adults. Now, we still sort of test the limits of what children can tolerate sometimes. For the very worst diseases, we have to push the doses of drugs harder and harder to try to cure the cancer, and that means we have to manage more and more side effects in order to treat the cancer. The main priority, of course, is to cure the cancer, and sometimes we have to accept side effects along the way. Well, almost always we have to accept side effects along the way, as the price of curing the cancer. So what is chemotherapy? Well, like I said, it's a fancy name for drugs that kill cancer. Most of the main chemotherapy drugs, and most of them have been around for a couple of decades, they work by killing dividing cells. So if you think about a cancer, a cancer goes from one cell to two cells to four cells to eight cells, and the cells are rapidly dividing. And that's what cancer is. Cells that are rapidly dividing in an uncontrolled way and forming a lump or a leukemia, a tumour. And it's that dividing cell nature of cancer that allows us to attack them with chemotherapy. So chemotherapy in many cases involves the use of drugs that attack dividing cells. Now, the problem is, of course, that there's normal cells in the body that are constantly dividing. Okay, in your body, you have cells that haven't really done much dividing ever since the day you were born. So there's certain, I guess, muscle cells and some of the nerve cells. There's certain cells in your body that don't divide much. You sort of end up with the amount of cells you're going to have, and then that's it for the rest of your life. On the other hand, there's cells that are constantly dividing and replenishing themselves. So hair, for instance. Hair is constantly being pumped out of your head, hopefully, and that's because the hair cells in the hair follicles are constantly dividing. What about the lining of your mouth? The lining of your mouth. You know if you bite your tongue and it hurts and you feel a bit of an ulcer there on your tongue, but within a few days it's all gone? Well, that's because the lining of your mouth 
has cells that are rapidly dividing. What about the bone marrow? The bone marrow is where we make blood cells. Well, that's one of the most active tissues in the body. That's where there's cells dividing all the time, pumping out new white blood cells, new red blood cells, new platelets. Very active tissue. And so these tissues are also sensitive to chemotherapy drugs that target dividing cells. So how does the chemotherapy work? Well, cancer cells aren't normal cells, remember. And so for some reason, if we give the right combination of drugs that targets dividing cells, well, we can kill the cancer cells, knock them right down, knock the normal tissues right down. But for some reason, hopefully the normal cells grow back, but the cancer doesn't. Now, there would be people with all sorts of complicated explanations for why this happens. But the bottom line is, we just know that it works from previous experience. From decades of experience, we have learned that if we give certain drugs to certain tumours, that the normal tissues will take a hit, the cancer will take a hit, but in many cases, the cancer just won't grow back. And that's what we rely on. For some reason, the tumour cells are more sensitive to the chemotherapy than the normal tissues. And that's to do with the fact that, you know, cancer cells, they're not normal cells, they're cancer cells. So they're a bit screwed up inside. A lot of the time, those chemotherapy drugs that attack dividing cells, they're working by interfering with the DNA in the tumour cells. You all know about DNA, I hope. The DNA is uh, where your genes are stored in the nucleus of each cell. That's where your DNA is. Well, when a cell divides, to make two copies of itself, it has to make a complete new copy of the DNA so that then the two cells that result from one cell each then have a full copy of the DNA. So think of it as a recipe book inside one cell. If the cell wants to divide into two, first thing it has to do is get the photocopy machine, make a copy of the recipe book, and then split the two recipe books among the next two cells. And then the next two cells copy the recipe book and share it among the, the subsequent four cells. So that's how cells divide. They have to be copying DNA and passing it on to the next cells. Well, a lot of chemotherapy drugs work by interfering with the DNA in the cells, somehow getting in amongst the DNA creating mistakes in the DNA that stop the cell from dividing properly, just generally interfering with DNA. A whole class of drugs called alkylating agents, for instance, they get right in among the DNA and add extra chemical groups in the midst of it, and it really just messes it all up. Other drugs work to interfere with cancer cells because cancer cells are, say, particularly reliant on some particular biochemical pathway. Let me give you an example. Uh, there's a drug called asparaginase, asparaginase. This is a drug that we use in leukemia mostly, and it interferes with the cell's ability to make a chemical called asparagine. Okay? Cells need asparagine. Well, leukemia cells, for some reason, if you block asparagine production, you can kill the leukemia cells and leukemia cells are just much more sensitive to this process than normal cells. Another drug's called methotrexate. Methotrexate blocks the cell's ability to make folate. You know folic acid? 
It's a vitamin, it's in spinach and green vegetables, it's very important vitamin in the body. Well, methotrexate stops the cells from being able to use folate properly. And for some reason, the cancer cells can't handle that, whereas normal tissues in the body can. Well, they can a bit more than the cancer cells. So there's a whole bunch of different ways that drugs work to kill cancer. A lot of them target the DNA. Mostly they target dividing cells. Now, the future lies in the, the new drugs that have been coming out over the last several years. These are what we call targeted drugs. See, the old-fashioned chemotherapy drugs, the ones that we rely on most of the time, they're not particularly clever in singling out cancer cells from normal cells. And that's why we have to have so many side effects from normal tissues. These targeted drugs really take advantage of something about the cancer that's very different to the normal cells in the body. So there's a class of drugs called monoclonal antibodies. These are antibodies. You know antibodies that our body makes to fight infections? Well, you can make an antibody against a tumour cell. Or you can find that the tumour cells have on the surface of them a particular chemical, and then you make an antibody against that chemical, and then when you give the antibody, it goes to the tumour cells, and it's usually got something poisonous attached to it, and it delivers its poison straight to the tumour cell, and hopefully doesn't damage normal tissues nearly as much. There's other classes of drugs. There's one called uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors that, again, particularly target some abnormality in the tumour cell in a very specific, targeted way, very different to normal tissues. And, and these will be the future if we can get them all to work. There's all sorts of clever molecular ways to attack cancer cells, and that's where hundreds of new drugs are coming out. And then another class of drugs that's coming out and is proving effective in melanoma already is something called immunotherapy. That's using the immune system to kill the cancer in a very sophisticated way. So that's the future, hopefully. But for the time being, the bulk of what we use to treat children with cancer is from what we call cytotoxic chemotherapy. Cytotoxic means it kills cells, well, cancer cells. And that's where we find most of the drugs that we use in children's cancer. How do we give chemotherapy? There's multiple different ways for giving chemotherapy drugs. Some of them can be just given by mouth as a tablet or a syrup. And there's a lot of medications that can be given this way. A lot of the drugs are given into a vein, either by putting a drip in the hand or the arm. But more often in children, we end up with something called a central line. That's like a drip in your hand or arm, but it's one that a surgeon puts in, normally up into a big vein in the neck. And that's a line that can stay in for weeks and weeks and months and months, as long as it doesn't get blocked or infected. Most children have this central line, and a lot of the drugs are given intravenously, either pushed in over just a few minutes with a syringe or a little what we call mini bag dripped in over a few minutes, or sometimes dripped in over an hour, sometimes 24 hours. Some drugs are dripped in over four days slowly. Often those Drugs come with a lot of fluids dripped in as well to protect the kidneys and all sorts of complicated regimens exist. Some chemotherapy drugs are given by an injection just into the muscle or just under the skin, you know, a bit like an immunisation injection. And then a particular one that we use in leukaemia mostly 
is called intrathecal chemotherapy. Thecal, T-H-E-C-A-L, intrathecal. This is where we do a lumbar puncture. A lumbar puncture is a needle down in the back around the same sort of place where you do an epidural, but it's a, it's a needle that goes in a few more millimetres and into the spinal fluid, and then we can inject a chemotherapy drug into the spinal fluid. And that's mostly in leukaemia and lymphoma where we have to do this intrathecal chemotherapy because some of the drugs don't get into the brain very well, but leukemia can. And so this is a way to make sure that we get a drug into the spinal fluid to protect the brain from leukemia. So drugs are given in multiple different ways and with multiple different doses, multiple different schedules. The other thing to say about treating children's cancer with chemotherapy is that we usually use multiple different drugs. We don't just rely on one drug at a time, but usually we rely on two or three or five or six. In a disease like leukemia, we have many different drugs being used. And the reason for this is ultimately, well, we found out that that's what worked in previous research trials. But there's a number of scientific reasons why multiple drugs might be better than just using one drug at once. One reason is that this is a way to prevent the emergence of drug resistance. We don't want the cancer to have drug resistance. Drug resistance means that some of the cancer cells survive the chemotherapy and then they can grow back again. That's what we don't want. Well, the logic is that if we give three or four drugs, a cancer cell that knows how to manage drug A, for some reason, has a some mechanism inside the cancer cell to deal with drug A, hopefully it won't also know how to deal with drug B and drug C and drug D. And so we hope that we can prevent the emergence of drug resistance by using multiple different drugs at once. The other thing is that certain chemotherapy drugs can help the other chemotherapy drug to work better. That's called Synergy, S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y, Synergy. So, for instance, if there was a drug that interfered with DNA in a cell, damaged the DNA of the tumour cell, another drug might stop the tumour cell from repairing that damage. So the two drugs together can work better than either one used alone. Another reason to give multiple drugs is it allows you to spread the toxicities. That is, suppose one drug, we'll call it drug A, had a particular side effect on the kidneys, let's say. Well, if you had to rely just on drug A and use it in higher and higher doses, well, then the risk to the kidneys would be greater. Suppose drug B has side effects mostly at the bone marrow, so the blood counts. Well, perhaps by using drug A and drug B, you can use a lower dose of each, and therefore drug A doesn't damage the kidneys as much and drug B doesn't damage the bone marrow as much. So that's something called spreading the toxicities. Next question is, how do we know what drugs to give to a child with cancer? Well, ultimately, we know what drugs to give because of previous clinical trials. So in previous decades, the paediatric oncology clinics and units and have approached families and said, look, we want to treat your child with the best treatment we know of but we want to add in a new drug or we want to compare these two 
treatments because we really don't know which one's better, treatment A or treatment B. Would we have your permission to treat your child within a clinical trial? And usually these clinical trials are conducted at multiple different hospitals where all the big experts in a given tumour type have got together and designed a clinical trial. They've said, okay, we think the best treatment for this type of tumour is to give drug A, drug B and drug C. But look, here's a new drug called drug D. So why don't we compare patients treated with A, B and C to people treated with A, B, C and D? So that's a clinical trial to compare the best treatment we have with the best treatment we have with maybe a new drug. And then we can see, well, does drug D improve things or not? And that's how we know whether to move forward adding drug D to the group or whether just to stay with drugs A, B and C. So parents over the decades have agreed to their children being treated in these trials. They always need to give their consent and they're always allowed to say, no thanks, doc. But that's the way we move forward in working out what to give. So the short answer to how do we know what drugs to give is we know what drugs to give because of previous clinical trials that have allowed us to work out the best treatment for a given cancer. And those trials have a whole lot of different phases in them. There's phase one trials that look at the safety of new drugs. There's phase one trials that work out what's the right dose to give. And then there's phase two trials that give that dose and look for an early sign of whether it's an active drug against a particular cancer. And then eventually you get to a phase three trial and that's where you take the best treatment we know of and try to improve on it and see if if we can improve by adding a new drug or a new dose or a new radiation treatment or a new type of surgery. So the clinical trials are where it's all come from. And you'll find most of the paediatric oncology centres around North America, Europe, Australia, Asia, elsewhere, are normally attached to clinical trials groups. So they're regularly participating in clinical trials. Because paediatric oncology is pretty academic specialty. It's usually centred in big children's hospitals. They're not being treated out in the suburbs or, or you know, out in minor hospitals. It's normally headquartered in big academic centres and clinical trials are part and parcel of what we do. So normally there's a whole lot of data to support a given strategy and a given choice of drugs in children with cancer. But now I guess I'm going to have to talk about the side effects. Side effects. Side effects are a big problem with chemotherapy like I said, everyone's heard a horror story about chemotherapy and has seen a relative have chemotherapy and, and it's been rough. Well, that's true. I've got to say that most of the time when children go on chemotherapy, it's going to be a bad time. Now, it's very variable. Sometimes it's a disrupted time. It's Life's a bit messed up. Most of the time the kid can still be going to school and at home and it's bad, but it's sort of okay, you know. Other times, chemotherapy has to be given in big, strong doses and, and it's totally all-consuming and a lot of side effects, weeks in hospital. So in between that horror story and that sort of manageable story, that's, that's where we find things. The thing about side effects is, first off, that there are what we call acute side effects or short-term side effects. These are the side effects that happen after we give the drugs and then the child recovers. And then we give the drugs again, the side effects occur, and then the child recovers. So they're the short-term side effects. 
Another class of side effects are called the long-term side effects. These are things where we give the drugs and then potentially we cause a side effect and it's permanent. That's a long-term side effect. Now when it comes to the short-term side effects, the acute side effects, I guess we, we have to adopt a mindset that says that, well, we can accept a lot of short-term side effects. As long as they're going to recover, we can accept a lot of short-term side effects if that's the price to pay to save a child's life. And I think the doctors and the parents are mostly on board with that, that we just have to accept it. It's rough. It can be a bad time. But if that's the price we have to pay, well, I think we can normally say, well, we can accept that within reason. There are limits. Long-term side effects, well, likewise, we can accept certain long-term side effects if that's the price we pay to cure the cancer. But we agonise long and hard over long-term side effects and are constantly looking at a a way to find less long-term side effects while still maintaining the chances to cure the cancer. But first off, let me just list some of the acute side effects, and they don't all apply to every drug. So plenty of times drugs will be given that don't cause all of these side effects, and I'll do podcasts on one drug after another, one by one, to go through them all. But let me just list some of the common side effects that we see. Now, we do see hair falling out. Children lose their hair. Not always. Depends what drugs we're giving depends on individual children. Some children's hair falls out, some thins a bit, some don't lose their hair. I don't get it, but anyway, there is variability, but very often the hair falls out. When does it fall out? Mm, Depending on the drugs, a few weeks later, usually. If we give the drugs that cause hair loss, it's usually a few weeks later it starts to sort of fall out in bits and pieces. It grows back when we finish treating. It'll grow back you know there's no getting away from it it's it can be distressing for the patient i think little kids aren't bothered by it as much as you might think i think they take it in their stride i think older kids maybe worries them more a lot of the chemotherapy drugs cause nausea you know feeling sick and vomiting some drugs are terrible for this some are not very variable and we've got a whole lot of clever anti-vomiting drugs that we didn't have in previous decades It's variable. A very common side effect is suppression of the normal bone marrow function. The bone marrow inside your bones is meant to make blood cells all day long. It's meant to make red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets. Well, very often when we give chemotherapy drugs, the bone marrow stops working for a few days. And so the blood cells that should have come off the assembly line a week or 10 days later, they're just not there. So all the blood counts go low, then they recover, and usually that takes, I don't know, two or three weeks from when we gave the drugs, and then we can give the drugs again. So give the drugs, blood counts drop, blood counts recover, give the drugs again. Blood counts down, blood counts up, blood counts down, blood counts up. If they go too low, we have to give blood transfusions, platelet transfusions. can end up in hospital with fevers if the white cell count's low. Some drugs cause mouth ulcers, some cause diarrhea. So you can imagine that weight loss can be an issue and weight loss can really be a problem during the treatment of children's cancer because they feel sick at times from taking the drugs and then they might have a sore mouth and 
all up, maintaining weight can be a big issue. So often we have a dietitian involved that sees the families, may end up with some sort of artificial feeding if it becomes severe enough weight loss. And then there's a whole lot of other acute side effects that you really need the doctors and nurses to explain for a particular combination of chemotherapy drugs. And then there's the fine print, of course. There's always this rare side effects that no one's ever seen before, but if you check it out, it's, it's there in the literature. So there's some of the common acute side effects, things that happen and then get better. What about long-term side effects? And again, I'm going to go all through all these in more detail, drug by drug, but just to list a few that are commonly thought of in treating children with cancer. First, there's the heart. There's a certain class of drugs called anthracyclines that can weaken the muscle of the heart if you give too much. The anthracyclines. These are drugs like dornorubicin, doxorubicin, idorubicin, mitoxantrone. These drugs are used in the treatment of leukemia. They're used in the treatment of Ewing sarcoma, osteosarcoma, certain other sarcomas, sometimes kidney tumours, and various other tumour types, the anthracyclines. These drugs can weaken the muscle of the heart, so they're not going to cause a heart attack like blocking the arteries in the heart, like an older person getting a heart attack. They can weaken the muscle of the heart. And we feel like we know the right amount of drug to give to have less of that risk. What we do is every time we give a dose of those drugs, we add up how many doses the child has had and we look at the cumulative total of anthracyclines that we've given. And we try to stay below a certain magic number that seems to be where the risk of heart damage gets worse. Now, I say it seems to be because... The effect of that class of drugs on the heart muscle can take decades to emerge. It might be that the heart function is normal during the chemotherapy, but 10, 20, maybe 40 years later, maybe we're going to see something emerge as far as abnormal heart function is concerned. So we really try to avoid using those drugs at all, and we do what's called a heart echo, an echocardiogram. It's a bit like an ultrasound, but it's of the heart. And that's a good test to measure the heart function and monitor the heart function during treatment. So we'd normally do this heart test at the start of treatment to check that the child has a normal heart to start with, and they usually do. After we've given a few doses of these drugs, then we would repeat the heart test and, and check that it's still normal and then repeat it later on again. So most of the time we successfully can give those drugs during treatment without seeing abnormalities develop in the heart function, but it's something that we would monitor for the rest of the child's life. Certain drugs can affect hearing, so particularly a class of drugs called cisplatinum, carboplatin a bit, but mostly cisplatin can affect the hearing and can affect the kidneys. So we do audiograms at the start of treatment and then we monitor the hearing during treatment to check that the cisplatinum isn't causing unacceptable amounts of hearing loss. Now we'll normally detect some loss of very high frequency hearing but it's only if that loss becomes more severe we have to think well can we keep giving this drug or do we have to stop it. And that's an effect that seems to be related to the total number of doses you've given as well. 
That same class of drugs can affect the kidneys, so we monitor kidney function during treatment. Oftentimes we see abnormalities develop, but the body has a lot of spare kidney function. We can take out a whole kidney and still remain very healthy. So we often have to accept that some abnormality in the kidney develops, but if it's only a minor abnormality, we can push on with the drug treatment because curing the cancer is the first priority. Some drugs can affect the ability of a child to have children when they get older. Not all drugs. There's a lot of chemotherapy drugs that will not affect the ability to have children. But there are certain drugs that will affect that capability. They can cause infertility. And I'll have to talk about this in greater detail later. Again, there are a number of chemotherapy drugs that don't have a particular risk of causing infertility. Do not assume that every child given chemotherapy won't be able to have children. That is not the case. There are certain drugs, though, and if we give a lot of those drugs, then there is a very real risk of infertility. And so a discussion of this normally needs to take place at the start of treating a child with cancer. And in selected patients, there's a place for sperm banking or harvesting eggs and putting them in the freezer or there's new technologies coming out to harvest a little piece of ovary even. These are, these are emerging areas and things to discuss at the start of treatment. Sometimes we have to start treatment more urgently. Sometimes there isn't time for that sort of thing. But a fertility consultation can often be a useful thing at the start of treatment if the situation allows. Now certain chemotherapy drugs may cure the cancer but leave the patient with an increased risk of getting a different cancer later in life. So for instance, we might treat a patient for say a bone tumour or a brain tumour, but some of the drugs we gave may give them a slightly increased risk of getting say leukaemia later in life, maybe five years later, maybe 25 years later. This is a definite risk for some of the chemotherapy drugs. But like with infertility, there's a lot of drugs where this risk is not considered to be particularly high. Then there's other chemotherapy drugs where the risk is a very real one of an increased risk of getting leukemia. Doesn't mean everyone's going to get leukemia. Most are not going to get leukemia. The priority is to kill the existing cancer, to cure the child now. But we have to be aware that there might be an increased risk of leukemia later in life and we may need to watch out for that or we may try very hard to get rid of the use of that drug and replace it with a different drug as we try to move forward in treating children with cancer. So in summary, chemotherapy is just a fancy name for drugs to treat cancer and there's multiple different drugs out there given with multiple different doses and in multiple different combinations, and you can't generalise as to how it will affect a particular child. It's all quite unpredictable. I guess it's fair to say that mostly it's a rough time to be on chemotherapy. It's, it can be a terrible time. Patients can spend prolonged periods in hospital mopping up side effects. Others can get on with life mostly, not enjoy it. It can be bad, but still manage to go to school and, and go to football and so on. 
So it's very variable time. But by and large, it's, it's a bad time for families and for the child. Our choice of chemotherapy is very much driven by scientific data derived in previous clinical trials. Almost always, the doctors and nurses treating children with cancer are basing the treatment on previous clinical trials that have been conducted internationally. They don't normally just have some homegrown recipe of drugs that they're using on a particular child. Normally, it's all driven by data that's been derived in these clinical trials. The main thing is to get individualised information from the treating team for any child with cancer. By all means, go to Dr Google, even listen to a podcast if you like, but individualised information is what's important so that you can know what to expect for a particular child with a particular treatment. So that's where I'll stop talking about chemotherapy today. I'll proceed on to podcasts on individual drugs one at a time. You should also know that this podcast is available through iTunes now. Originally, some people were getting it from SoundCloud, but it's also there at iTunes. If you go to iTunes and search in their system for Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff, you'll find it. And if you want to leave a review, give me some stars, that'd all be well received. I also have a Facebook page now and you can leave comments there. Again, if you go to Facebook and look for a, I guess it's a friend, is it? Uh, Look for Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. Well, you'll find uh, the homepage for this podcast. And if you want to leave a comment, that'd be good. Or any suggestions for further podcast episodes, that'd be fun as well. But anyway, that's where I finish today with Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. I am Dr. Jeff. Bye now.